Americans of all races love our country, and a doctrine that's grounded in hatred of our country is eventually going to just grate to the point where people will reject it. My guest today is Dr. Peter Wood. Dr. Wood is president of the National Association of Scholars. In 2019, he received the Gene Kilpatrick Prize for Contributions to Academic Freedom. Dr. Wood's recent book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1690 Project, exposes the jumble of lies, half-lies, logical fallacies, bad history, and bad faith of a project motivated by greed and hatred of America. It also tells a full story about capitalism. In seeking to debunk American principles, the 1619 authors were led to ignore history to disregard some of its most moving and revealing aspects. I recently sat down with Dr. Wood and talked about the 1619 Project and how dangerous it really is. All right, Dr. Peter Wood, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show. Uh, I'm really excited what you have to say because your book, I breathed through it over the past couple of days, and really great stuff that you have in there. So let's get right to it. Well, thank you for having me on. Okay. Make believe I fell from Mars, and I have no idea what the 1619 Project is. How would you explain it to someone living in America today that has no idea what's going on? Well, uh, in 2019, America's uh, so-called newspaper of record, its uh, most important lead news source for the whole country, devoted a whole issue of its Sunday magazine to what it called the 1619 Project. That's where the term comes from. And that 1619 Project was a very somber declaration uh, accompanied by a black and white picture of an empty ocean on the cover saying that 400 years earlier in uh, August of 1619, a slave ship had arrived off the coast of Jamestown, Virginia, and uh, onboarded 20-some black African slaves who were then uh, the beginning of what the authors call the slaveocracy that would one day become the United States. This is a, a positive assertion that something happened and that it had consequences. It was also a negative assertion that other things hadn't happened. So the 1619 Project is a loud, vigorous declaration that the American ideals of freedom and equality are a sham. They never had any real presence at all. They just were an attempt to cover up the uh, expropriation of the labor of African slaves and uh, the suppression of their rights. And that what began in August of 1619 continues with variations to this very day, that America needs to be understood as a nation that was founded in and continues to be illegitimate because it is based on uh, the theft of, of labor and freedom from Africans. Okay. I went to school and I learned that really the birthday of this country is July 4th, 1776, Declaration of Independence is signed, and history starts there as a nation. And the 1619 Project basically says, whoa, way off. Uh, history started 150 or so years prior with this, with an African slave ship coming to these shores. Is, do I have that right? Well, that, that's the claim that the New York Times was making. Um, there's a lot of things I could say about it. One of them is that the New York Times is a newspaper that is supposedly reporting news. In this case, it took on the task of uh, inventing history. And I use the word inventing there carefully in that uh, it's not telling a history that wasn't previously known, but it is uh, reframing, that's their word, all of American history through this one particular uh, supposed event. Um, and you wouldn't have been wrong to think that the nation of the United States began on July 4th, 1776. 
And the authors of the report, the, the principal author is a woman named Nicole Hannah-Jones, is ready to dispute that. According to uh, Hannah-Jones, what happened in 1776 is that the English colonists in North America became alarmed that the British would abolish slavery, take their slaves away, um, and create freedom. And they were so afraid this might happen that they decided that they would rebel so as they could, so as to preserve slavery. Um, so what happened in 1776, in other words, is just more of the same. It's just an effort to keep the slave system going. Now, I, I don't want to just leave those words lying there uh, as though they might be true because they're not one bit true. Um, and it can take this apart in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it's useful to first recognize that what happened way back in Jamestown in uh, 1619 isn't exactly what Nicole Hannah-Jones and her uh, fellow contributors said. Uh, indeed, a ship arrived off the coast there. It was a pirate ship, uh, English pirates, who had intercepted a a Spanish convoy of ships in the Caribbean headed towards Mexico with slaves destined for the mines um, in Mexico. They captured a bunch of the slaves. They sold some of them in uh, Bermuda. And then the, those that had left over, 20 some, we don't know the exact number, they brought north to Jamestown, by which point the pirates had run out of food and were willing to trade their slaves for food. Uh, some people in Jamestown took the offer, but Jamestown did not recognize the existence of slavery. So when these uh, African captives were taken off the, uh, the golden lion, the name, I'm sorry, the white lion was the name of the ship, uh, the, uh, they became indentured servants. Well, uh, being an indentured servant is not necessarily a great thing, especially if you're not volunteering for that task. But it's generally a lot better than being a slave because an indentured servant serves a, a term. Uh, in English law, it was usually seven years after which you're set free, which is exactly what happened to these particular captives. They became free after a period of time. Uh, we know what happened to some of them because they became landowners, they intermarried with the white population, uh, they had full legal rights, as we know, because in some cases there were court cases where they sued their neighbors and won. So this was uh, not really the instance of uh, uh, the beginning of slavery in the English colonies okay. in North America at all. Right. Wasn't okay, what so, so, wait, so Peter, let me, let me just jump in here for a second. Uh, it sounds like these are, are a newspaper comes up with a new history of the United States, starting it in 1619 as opposed to 1776. Uh, they have a whole bunch of people write stuff. Are these people scholars? Do they do they have any sources for this, or they just pick this in order? They had the conclusion they were just trying to find the facts. Well, my guess is that that's what happened. But uh, what we do know is that the the, that magazine supplement, the 1619 Project, had 10 major essays. Eight of those 10 essays were written by people who were not historians. Most of them were journalists. Uh, none of them uh, cite sources. So we get these stories presented as just so stories. This is what happens, they said. They don't tell you on what basis they think they know those things happened. Um, and we're left then with this kind of uh, very authoritative sounding account of American history with nothing like a historian's care for presenting the facts or noting where we don't know things or where the evidence is ambiguous. It's just sort of straight laid out there as a, uh, an account, a narrative of America's past. Okay, so, um, so hang, hang on. Hang on. No, hang on one second. Hang on one second. So now you totally threw me for a loop. So you have a newspaper with 10 journalists not citing any footnotes coming up with some sort of narrative that they found, created, or what have you. 
and rewriting the history of the United States. And you are a uh, professor of anthropology. You're the president of the National Association of Scholars. So you have, a, I would say, a couple of credits to your name of knowing what you're talking about. And why is anyone listening, or let me rephrase the question, why do I care what the New York Times put out as quote-unquote history by 10 or so journalists without citing any, any citations or footnotes? Well, uh, I cared because I know the New York Times has credibility, and this sounded to me like something that was going to uh, get some attention. So right away, I got busy looking more closely at the assertions and inviting other historians in to talk about it. But um, there's another reason to care, which is that New York Times is a fairly wealthy organization, and it decided to put a lot of resources behind promoting this. This wasn't a once-and-done magazine that ran in August during the slow months of the year. It It was the beginning of an effort to create a curriculum in America's schools. The last page of the magazine was a statement from the Pulitzer Center Uh, saying that they partnered with the New York Times and were turning these essays into a curriculum that would be suitable for uh, every grade level in America's schools. Um, They moved very quickly on that. Within a few months, they had signed up major school districts like uh, Buffalo and Chicago. They had uh, signed up thousands of teachers, now tens of thousands, and were bringing this into our schools. Now, some immediate alarms about that, which is that uh, changing the curriculum in the schools is usually something that gets a fair amount of public oversight. We have school boards and uh, uh, commissions in the various state bureaucracies, and the public has a lot to say about this as well. Uh, This bypassed all those safeguards and simply became a, a set of modules that the uh, teachers could pick up and plug into their courses without any oversight. Um, The Times didn't stop there. It produced a a, a lavish and rather beautiful minute-long television advertisement, the first time in that uh, newspaper's history they had done something like this. And they ran that uh, advertisement in the Super Bowl and in the uh, Oscar awards. They they were willing to spend a lot of money to get a lot of attention. The newspaper itself, over a period of many months, ran full-page advertisements for their own projects. Sometimes they were two pages. So no expense was spared, and that continues. Right now they offer uh, fellowships and uh, grants to teachers who are willing to adopt the project and to promote it to fellow teachers. The uh, Pulitzer Center continues to be in it uh, neck deep as something to be promoted. Uh, I think that the uh, the advertising campaign has to be looked at as part of the reason why Nicole Hannah-Jones, the principal author of this thing, got the Pulitzer Prize in uh, uh, June of 2020. Um, so it, it has spread. I mean, why pay attention if it were just one newspaper with a a fanciful story about America's past, that would be bad enough, but it's gone beyond being that to being something that uh, plays a pretty big role in our public life right now. Uh, You mentioned I'm the head of the National Association of Scholars. Uh, We've been uh, resisting the rise of the 1619 curriculum which has ties now to uh, things like Ibram X. Kendi's version of anti-racism, to the uh, critical race theory, to uh, the idea of uh, diversity, equity, uh, and inclusion. Okay, this- hang, hang one second, hang one second. I'm not getting this. And forgive okay. me, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a scholar. I, I, I definitely am not even close to uh, a historian, but here's what I'm not getting. They come out, the New York Times, a newspaper, with a, I don't know, anecdotal or revisionist or narrative that uh, this country really started based on racism from 1619. Journalists, not historians, citing no 
sources, no footnotes, no citations. And you're telling me now tens of thousands of teachers and school boards and school districts have adopted this so-called history into the classrooms to teach our kids? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, you know, the number of school boards, I have no idea. Uh, I do know, for example, that uh, uh, a friend of mine wrote a, uh, who is himself a historian, wrote to every school superintendent in the state of Connecticut saying, you really shouldn't adopt this. And that was uh, something like 180 different districts. Uh, only two of them responded and uh, or responded in a positive way. Uh, the, uh, it seems that the, what do you call it, professional educator class, the people who run our schools, and in many cases, the school boards are pretty eager to adopt the 1619 project. And, you know, that's a good thing to have a conversation about to try to understand why something that is so factually false, that's broken in its pieces, would um, appeal to the people we charge with educating our children. Um, and I, I should add, uh, I'm far from alone in thinking this is a bad idea. From, from the get-go, professional historians were coming forward and saying, significant mistakes here, here, and you have to fix them. And the historians who were coming forward weren't all uh, conservatives. Most of them were actually pretty liberal. Um, and they made their best case to the New York Times, you've got to fix these mistakes. The Times just flatly refused to do that. So uh, we are dealing with a, a falsification of American history, not just a alternative narrative or a, a new interpretation, but something that we know is just not so. Okay, um, so, so let, me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. If tomorrow morning the New York Times comes up with the, I don't know, a, a new project where the, the Flat Earth Society, and they have 10 journalists not citing citations, not citing any scientific uh, facts, come out and with this beautiful glossy uh, curriculum and try to get into our schools to say, look, everything that we've been learning is really wrong. Uh, the earth is the center of the universe. In fact, the earth is even flat. Everything was different. How would scholars, teachers, I don't want to put teachers in that, how would school boards, uh, educators, how would they deal with that? Forget about the 1690 project. What would you, what do you think? Or I'm just an average guy. What would you think they would, uh, they would respond to that? Uh, I think they take it as an April fool's joke. Uh, they would laugh at it and, uh, just say, oh, never mind. Um, um, the reason being that in, in something like uh, whether the earth is uh, going around the sun or the sun around the earth, people have a pretty basic level of scientific literacy. And there are lots of subjects in which you know, we would let our better knowledge prevail. It doesn't in this case, and that's you know for a reason. Uh, and the reason... Uh, takes us back to what ha happened in 2020 and in years before that, when the post-George Floyd riots broke out in many cities and buildings were burned and people were killed, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, said these are the 1619 riots. Uh, when statues were being toppled, George Washington on his face, so forth, spray painted on the base of those statues was 1619. Um, what happened was that the 1619 project fit in beautifully with the idea that this was a new era in which racial resentment could be unleashed, that uh, ideas such as the, the one that there's implicit racism everywhere, that we're a systemically racist society, had to be met with some kind of response. And among educators, the response tended to be one of um, kind of abject capitulation rather than pushing back, are we really a systemically racist society? 
uh, educators by and large made declarations that yes, indeed we are. If that's what you believe to be the case, or more or less, uh, then something like the 1619 Project makes sense. This is a a way of uh, atonement for all the bad things that America did to people of African ancestry. And uh, who cares if it's not exactly right? It feels morally right. It feels good to be able to say we're doing something to make up for uh, centuries of enslavement and denial of civil rights. What we're doing now is teaching the 1619 Project. So the 1619 Project arrived at the right moment. It arrived at a moment when um, educators, many of them white, were ready to say, uh, absolutely, we need to do something to fix the problem. What have we got? And they looked in their uh, drawers, and what they have was the 1619 Project. So I think what's happened here is that this was a, uh, a kind of match thrown into the uh, uh, tinderbox. We have a, a world now where there are a lot of educated or semi-educated people who believe that it's really, really, really important to atone for slavery. And the way to do that is to tell this new uh, fairy tale, this, this fable. Um, I'm, by calling it a fairy tale, I'm not really doing it justice. It's much worse than that. Uh, this, this eradicates uh, the basis for our common citizenship in this country. Right. How do so, you, so, you know, no, go ahead, go ahead. How do I mean, you? How, how do you have a country in which you bring up a generation of children to hate it, uh, to view our past as nothing but uh, cause for shame and disgrace and uh, to view even the present as so riddled with uh, racial animus and hatred that uh, we can't possibly get along with each other. This is a 1619 project is a cleaver that tries to uh, put a permanent division uh, between the races and to uh, say that the right way to proceed is through a profound resentment, through anger, and through uh, reparations. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. Hey, there's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Not surprising when the 21st annual Trust Barometer, published by Edelman Research, shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts. Real facts. Not the whitewashed mumbo-jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks, and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. This isn't bad history. This isn't uh, mistakes. This isn't uh, scholars debating. This is just, this is just uh, um, a catalyst, or not even a catalyst, this really is just feeding upon a present feeling among some that this country is a racist, terrible place. And the conclusion was already drawn, and now we're going to create a history, if you will, and I put that in quotes, with supplying facts that aren't facts, just fantasy. Is that more or less what this is? Yes, that's exactly what it is. This, uh, this is a fantasy. Now, I mean, I don't want to just throw a word at it. I think to say it's a fantasy, I should say at least a little bit about what, what's in that fantasy. And we've already mentioned 1776 and the American Revolution, which is falsely made out to be an effort to maintain slavery. A few more words about that. Um, slavery existed in m most of the uh, states that were going to become the United States 
uh, at that time, but so did an abolition movement. Uh, right. The abolitionist movement had already started in New England in that period. So by the time the American Revolution broke out, there were quite a few Americans who thought slavery was bad. Um, there were no Americans who thought that England was about to intervene and end slavery. Uh, that is because uh, England had a huge financial stake in continuing slavery. They were the biggest slave trader in the world, bringing large numbers of slaves over to supply their sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And they were supplying slaves to the southern states in America. Okay, uh, okay. Pretty much. Hang, on. Yeah. Hang on a second, Dr. Wood. So you're basically telling me the men who signed the Declaration of Independence and who risked their lives by signing a treasonous document, because that's what the Declaration was, right? You still were under... Uh, you were still under England, and anyone who signed that, as Ben Franklin said, we all hang together, we all hang separate. They, they risked their lives to sign this because, and I'm just trying to understand what the 1619 Project is, is because they wanted to perpetuate slavery in this new world, in this new country that we're founding. Is that yes or no? Yes, that's exactly what Nicole Hannah-Jones says. That's the reason why the colonists rebelled was to maintain slavery. Okay, so it's now... Just, now it's flat out not true. And, okay. and, you know, the not trueness of it is that we know why the American colonies rebelled. They told us so in the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> it lays out a whole bunch of reasons. That reason isn't among them. So maybe they had that reason and were hiding it. Well, you would think then it would show up someplace else, maybe in colonial newspapers. They've, all the colonial newspapers have been scoured. It's not in there. How about private letters, people's diaries? Never mentioned. So this is something where if you wanted to find evidence to support it, there, isn't uh, any. there are places you could look, but there isn't any. There just there isn't, isn't oh, any. Okay, let me go through history with you because this sounds... I, I knew very little about the 1690 Project. All, all that I knew, it, it just was... It seemed to me just a jumble of a lot of BS thrown together... To prove a point, I didn't know how dangerous it is and how much it's, it's not, I shouldn't say seeping, it's really like a tsunami into the educational system. So I, I just want to go through a couple of things with you. Abraham Lincoln, uh, what he did to save the Union and to the emancipation and the soldiers from the North and South, and we have all the, we have many letters between Northern, Northern and the Southerners during that war, uh, talking about fighting in order to free slaves. All bunk? Uh, no, that's exactly what happened. The, there were two main motives for the North in the Civil War. One was to maintain the Union, and the other was to free the slaves. And uh, both those things are true, but what's not true is what the uh, New York Times puts forward, which was the idea that Lincoln pursued the Civil War in order to exile the slaves outside continental United States, send them someplace else to Haiti, to Panama, maybe to Africa. Now, you know, there is this to say for that, that back way in the beginning of the 19th century, the abolitionist movement was trying to figure out how to help ex-slaves. And their notion at that point was, well, maybe we can repatriate people back to Africa. That's where the colony of Liberia came from. Um, Lincoln grew up with that idea all around him. There were many well-meaning people who thought the best we can do to get rid of slavery would be to uh, create repatriation instead. During the Civil War, at one point, Lincoln met with a delegation of uh, black leaders in Washington, D.C., in which he mentioned this idea. It actually was taken over by the delegation who thought it was a pretty good idea, and they said they would support it. But Lincoln himself said, no, I, that's not what I want to do, and he quickly backed away from it. Nicole Hannah-Jones knew about that one afternoon meeting at the White House in which Lincoln said these things. She took that to be Lincoln's real reason for fighting the Civil War. This whole, everything else was just a mask that he really wanted to do is get rid of the black people in the United States. Okay, okay, so, okay. so, so, so wait, let, let, me, let me go even further. Uh, 
So the letters between the northern, the the um, the Union Army soldiers, and many times in many cases their family members who are fighting in the South. We have many letters that go back and forth, and you read about the fervor that many of these Northerners, these Union soldiers, felt that they were doing God's work by freeing the slaves. All that was bunk as well. We don't. It, that's that's how do how does she address that? She doesn't address it. She has a high capacity to ignore any evidence that doesn't uh, fit with her thesis. So uh, we, we learn that Lincoln was a racist. We don't really learn about the uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers who thought that they were fighting to liberate slaves. Um, but we do know that they were racist too because they were white and they were part of this system which continued oppression even after the end of slavery we just went into slavery uh, in another form okay, okay. Um, so so let me let me move forward 1964 lbj uh civil rights uh the most i don't know this most amazing document for african americans since the emancipation what about, what about that lbj was doing well. What was President Johnson doing with the Civil Rights Bill? That was also a sham? Uh, it was just another cover-up for white supremacy. The idea was that, yeah, we can pretend to respect the, the rights and liberties of uh, African Americans, but we don't really have to do that because we have uh, so arranged the American economy, even our interstate highway system, our medical systems, in every imaginable way, discrimination is now thoroughly baked into the American system. So creating the illusion of civil rights is fine. We won't really have to change anything. All right. I, just, I just want to tell, for, the, for those listening to the podcast, Dr. Wood is a pretty serious guy. But every now and then, the corner of his mouth just curves into a smile because he can't believe what he's actually saying. Now he's actually laughing. This is becoming even funny to me. If it wasn't so serious, I, I would be laughing as well. Uh, next for you, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. Eisenhower sends in troops so black children could go to, to a white school to integrate schools. Sham as well. That, that was what, more cover-up, more white supremacy? Yeah, it's more, it's, um, white supremacy is a supremely clever system that uh, knows when it should fall back just a tiny bit to give people the illusion that they are being uh, respected and treated fairly. So uh, okay. Brown versus the Board of Education ends legal segregation, but we know that most blacks are going to be confined to crummy uh, inner city schools and not get any real education anyway. Uh -huh. This was just a ruse. Uh, this was just a ruse in order. This is the white man being so clever that throughout history, they find these points in order to make it seem like they really care, but between us, they really don't. Is that right? That's right. Um, now, Nicole Hannah-Jones has a, a nice way to frame all this. She says every advance in civil rights was achieved solely by the efforts of black people helping themselves. So you know right away that when uh, LBJ or uh, some other white person is on the side of advancing civil rights, uh, he's up to something mischievous. It isn't real. Uh, okay. The real advances only come from black people helping themselves. Okay, so Robert Weaver, the first African-American to hold a cabinet position. Uh, he's appointed Secretary of Housing and Urban Development uh, by LBJ, by Lyndon Baines Johnson, 1966. Also a sham. He helped himself into that position, or the white man was helping him once again just to cover up. Well, she doesn't specifically address that, but I mean, I understand the project's logic well enough to know that uh, uh, he may have thought he was being um, uh, a successful black man advancing the cause of uh, black civil rights, but uh, he was really just window dressing for the racist system that was all Beautiful. around him. Got it. Okay, let, let's even get him even better. So, uh, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Secretary of State. If anyone knows anything about history, and I think I'm, I still know a little bit, the Secretary of State is in the succession plan of, of the presidency, right? So when these two African-Americans were placed by a Republican president into these positions of power, uh, this was also 
a sham as well? Of course, it had to be. I mean, we know that white people don't give up power or share it without some clever reason of their own. Got it. But, but, All right, so let's let's keep going. Obama, Obama, uh, uh, um, <laughs> Barack Obama becoming president in two thousand eight. Term two terms. Tell me about that again. Oh, of course, he but he was elected with the wholehearted support of the black community. That was self help, and you know that they were able to uh, bring some white voters along too. Well, that was nice, but what really happened with Barack Obama was that he was. Uh, uh, a someone who was championed by the black community. But uh-huh. by the way, he never he never really lived up to that. He he once in office didn't deliver the goods the way he should have. Uh-huh. Kamala Harris. Uh, Nicole. Kamala Harris. Um, what about her? That was another joke. Well, look, Kamala Harris is kind of a hard case. She's not African American. She's. Um, no, but don't don't Indian. tell anyone that. Don't tell anyone she's half Jamaican and half Indian, because that's not true. She's the same way Barack Obama was. Uh, I don't I don't think anyone ever saw Barack Obama's mother in anything. She was white, and it didn't fit the narrative. Did you ever see her campaign? Did you ever see her anywhere during his eight years? Uh, not at all. I think she she disappeared. Um, I, I don't actually know what happened to her. Is she alive? <laughs> I don't know. I hope she is. But um, but uh, Kamala Harris, who was so proud to be the first Indian senator from India, now she's not African-American. She's Jamaican-American, half Jamaican-American, half, half uh, Indian. And according to this new narrative, the 1619 Project, she's not a real African-American, therefore doesn't count. Is that right? Well, you know, I think that raises a good question. Um, about seven months after the 1619 project was published, Nicole Hannah Jones went back into the New York Times magazine with a follow-on essay titled "What Is Owed," and uh, it's an account of why America should pay reparations in the many billions of dollars to the descendants of people who were enslaved in America. Well, of course, that would leave out someone uh, like our vice president who, whose ancestors may have included slaves in Jamaica, probably that's true, but those were not slaves in America, and I'm not sure why we would be paying reparations for uh, people who were enslaved in another continent, another country, another place. Um, so there's that difficult issue. The same thing would be true of Barack Obama, who, uh, to the extent that he's part African, his father was never enslaved. He was uh, from Kenya, from the Luau tribe. And uh, so uh, there are and have been uh, quite a few million African Americans who came to this country voluntarily after the end of slavery, uh, high immigration from Africa, even in the early decades of the 20th century. Um, so if we're going to pursue the line of reparations, uh, we've got this very curious um, uh, historical difficulty to unravel, which is that uh, there are a lot of Americans who don't think of themselves as black or African-American who do have ancestors who were enslaved. Uh, we have lots of other African-Americans who have no connection to uh, antebellum slavery in the South. Um, so one would have to be prepared to undertake an immense genealogical study and examination of historical records to carry through what Nicole Hannah-Jones now tells us was the real purpose of the 1619 Project, namely that she did it in order to create a movement that would lead to the payment of racial reparations to the descendants of slaves. Um, really kind of fascinating in that you probably couldn't do it if you wanted to. Why we would want to is something else. Uh, along those lines, what we have in the 1619 Project is a, a blame game. It's attempting to say that every dissatisfaction and unhappiness that 
African-Americans today experience can be traced back to the years in which uh, uh, blacks in this country were enslaved. Now, um, those years roughly go from the uh, 1670s through uh, emancipation in 1865. Uh, but many of the things which uh, weigh on the uh, lives and welfare of today's African-American community really have nothing to do with slavery. They have to do with uh, the uh, unfortunate consequences of the Great Society program, which just plain broke the African-American family and created generations of kids who grew up with uh, parents who were not married to each other. Um, the breakdown of our social institutions in the cities has a lot more to do with the politics and the economics of the last half century than it does with what happened a century and a half ago. Um, and that requires a certain willingness to um, uh, forget or to at least pay no attention to actual history. So, so, so let me ask you, Rachel, how does she deal with successful African-Americans who've achieved amazing things in the world of finance, in the world of scholarship, in the academia? How does she deal, how does she deal with all the oppression and racism, that, the so-called racism, the systemic racism? Uh, how does she, and the House of Representatives in the Senate and the, some of the people we've just mentioned who served in the cabinet how does she deal with all of that? Those are aberrations? Well, she basically doesn't deal with it. That's one of those collection of awkward facts that doesn't fit her scheme of things. But um, I'll impose my own extension of how she views the world on this. I don't think I could back this up by citing particular sentences from her writing. But her view is that the uh, racism of American society is so deep and so profound that um, we don't see it. And there are ambitious, talented blacks who overcome it uh, and achieve things despite the uh, oppression that's all around them. Um, but their achievements don't negate the oppression. It's still there. No matter right. how successful you might be as a, uh, a black woman, you may walk into a department store and have clerks look at you as a potential shoplifter, and that's racism. And everybody feels the sting of it. It's, de it's demeaning. It's that um, sense that um, people don't trust you or that people look down on you. And um, that is not something that's going to go away anytime soon, according to Hannah Jones in her uh, uh, What is Owed article. Uh, it's irreparable. It's never going to go away. So, 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 so let me ask you something. As, as a scholar, as, as someone who, who uh, for the past 40 so years of your career, have taken uh, what you do very seriously, uh, citing citations, researching, extensive, exhaustive researching, just to become, uh, just to get a doctorate, dissertations, everything. How do you look at something that comes out in the New York Times and is now being passed off as history, but even more so is being disseminated into our educational system. So 10 years from now, if we have this conversation, oh, God forbid, uh, our, we'd be talking about our grandchildren's grandchildren learning this, this, this fantasy world. Uh, how do you deal with something like that? Well, uh, Personally, I think I have a certain amount of anger towards this misuse of uh, the name of scholarship and history. Uh, more than angry, though, I'm alarmed. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm of an age now where I'm concerned about what becomes of our country, and there are multiple reasons for that. But certainly the idea that uh, uh, we have strived so hard, striven so hard for uh, all these centuries, really. The abolitionist movement was back before the revolution. Um, we've tried so hard and with such great success to overcome 
racism in this country, and now to suddenly decide, oh, never mind, uh, let's just embrace it. And, and that's really what the 1619 Project gives you, a kind of uh, neo-racism, uh, a willingness to say that uh, every effort to get past racism has failed, it always will fail. Now what we can do is just uh, uh, spend the rest of our time atoning in shame. Um, so if that's our future, it's a dismal future. It puts our country at risk. No country can succeed with the population divided against itself and viewing its past as uh, a, a burden that just leaves us um, wallowing in guilt. Uh, so alarmed, I guess, is my biggest word for this. Uh, at my best moments, I look at what Hannah Nicole Jones and her fellow writers have done, and I'm a little bit amused that they can uh, make such extraordinary claims on the basis of so little. Uh, you know, th there's a passage in my, my book, 1620, where I take notice that the Times actually created a new type font in order to print the 1619 project. Um, there's a little hint there of how they see this. This is such a epic-making break with all of history that it can't even be printed in the old type fonts like Times New Roman. And it has to be printed in its own special type font. Uh, a, uh, a kind of uh, extraordinary pride is evidenced in this, or, or vanity, that... Um, what we're doing here is so new, so special that uh, every single piece of it has to be seen as a radical break with history. Uh, we're we're making it new, brand new from the get-go. Okay, so, okay, so you you what? sit down, you sit down. You're alarmed, you're angered. You write 1620, a critical response to the 1690 pro the 1619 project. Your book on Amazon, uh, 350 or so five-star ratings. I, I did not read the whole book. I started leafing through it. I just couldn't believe you're responding to some of these silly accusations or some of these things that pass off as history, which wouldn't, if, if you, if you, back in the day, if you were in school and you mentioned something like this, you should fail. It's just totally wrong. So mm -hmm. what, the, what is the average American supposed to do or think when they hear of the 1619 Project? Because before you answer that, prior to our conversation, I, I figured it's a bunch of wackos, and uh, it wasn't going to be, eh, I really, all right, so they're saying such silly things. Who's going to listen? Who's going to believe them? But you're scaring the heck out of me now. So what is the average American, the average listener to my podcast, how alarmed should they be? I think I should be fairly alarmed. I, I think uh, to gauge your alarm or how much alarm you should have, you should check in with your local school district and see what's being taught. Uh, you might not get a straight answer from the school board or the superintendent. They now know that uh, millions of Americans are really alarmed about what's happening. So they have been uh, covering up a little bit. But uh, if you just do a little bit poking around and see this, if this thing is there, uh, it would help you make a sober judgment as to whether it's uh, something you should fight about. Now, um, I want to be sort of fair-minded about all this. I know that uh, having been through COVID, having been through the riots last year uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter still complaining that our police are racist and promiscuously shooting Black people, that there's a lot of tension in the country along the lines that uh, African-Americans have not been well-treated and something needs to be done. And that eagerness to do something uh, is, uh, I think, open to some question, but nonetheless, it's good faith on people's part. They aren't intentionally making themselves party to a sham, uh, but they are susceptible to the snake oil salesman who comes in and says, you got an ailment, I've got a cure, and here's the cure. 
Um, Americans do like to delegate things to their experts. When it comes to our children, the experts are teachers. And if the teachers are susceptible to the snake oil salesman, a lot of parents are just going to shrug and say, okay, I mean, I was bored in grade school too. It doesn't matter what they teach. Kids will find their own way. We rationalize our ability not to pay attention to what kids are learning. But back in the day, like back in the day for the last several hundred years, what kids were learning was basically factual history of where this country came from and why it matters. It matters because we're a nation that was founded in the pursuit of two cardinal values, liberty and equality. Liberty and equality don't always play well together. There's tensions between them, but nonetheless, those were our ideals. And we've gone mighty far to live up to those ideals. What kids used to learn in school, however well or however poorly, was that that's what we're about. That's what makes the United States a nation worth living in and worth defending. It also makes us the nation where immigrants from around the world want to come here. They want to be like us. They want to be part of this thing. So when we start teaching our youngest children, no, really, the the past of America was nothing but mistakes and worse than mistakes. People were mean. They were nasty. They did terrible things to each other. And all the things you enjoy in life, they aren't really something you deserve. They're just things that come by means of the oppression done to other people, the meanness done to other people. Cultivate young kids in that attitude. You're going to end up with generations of kids who have nothing but disgust for their own country. Now, mind you, if you start telling an adult these sorts of stories, most adults will be skeptical. How do you know that? Where did that come from? What about? You can't expect a seven-year-old to have those answers for a teacher. The teacher says it's this way. It all started with slavery when the slaves were brought to Jamestown in 1619. Kids will grow up believing that. They will also believe, unfortunately, that slavery was something that was unique to America. Well, it's not. I mean, the Native Americans were enslaving each other for millennia before Europeans ever got here. Uh, Once the Spanish and the Portuguese had established a slave trade, they were bringing slaves not only to South America, the Caribbean, but to Florida and Georgia. So slavery had been in what was going to become the United States 100 years before Jamestown. There's lots of ways in which this story doesn't really add up. Slavery was nearly a universal human institution. America was one of the first places that said no and stopped it. Uh, instead of telling that story, we're telling the story that America invented slavery and that this horrible institution is the result of choices that uh, our founders made. Well, false in every conceivable way. That's false. But how, how do they how do they how, deal with the how do they deal with the Bible, which talks about slavery and caring for a slave and and a, a Hebrew indentured servant serves six years, and the seventh year goes free, a Canaanite slave. All about that. How do they deal with that? And that's close to 3,000 years old. You know, if you look through the 1619 project, you're not going to find much of anything in it about the Bible. So uh, I would say they deal with that as they deal with other issues simply by ignoring them. Um, there is a is an element of Marxism that's built into this thing. The the 1619 Project really sees uh, the history of the country as one of uh, material expropriation of people's labor, but it also treats American prosperity as having derived entirely from the plantation system. Uh, Northern capitalism and industry thrived because of Southern capital derived from slavery. Uh, American labor practices to this day are a form, I quote the term here, of a low-road capitalism that was the South system of trying to extract as much labor from an individual slave as possibly could short of killing the person. Um, that, that story of uh, nasty, aggressive uh, mistreatment of people in order to extract the best economic gain for the, uh, the, the masters is uh, 
the story that we're now teaching to young children. All right, Dr. Wood, let me, let, me, let me give you the last word here because you thoroughly depressed me. I, I, was, I, was, I was happy coming here this morning to, to do this podcast. Now I, 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 I'm, I'm feeling terrible. Uh, you, I'm going to give you the last word on this, and I want you to make me happy, and I want you to make our listeners happy. Uh, this In the next, I don't know, three to five years, how do you see this playing out? Well, I think that we are two ways it's going to play out that might make you a bit optimistic. One is that nobody can long sustain a feeling of guilt without uh, a sense of there being an end to it. So if you're asking the uh, white population of America and everyone who's non-black to live in a perpetual shadow of, uh, of misery over things that they can't change because they happened so long ago, you're asking for something that's impossible. People for a while can go along with this uh, pretense that it's all about uh, admitting our guilt. But after a while, they'll get tired of that and they'll uh, shrug it off. The second thing is that uh, Americans love our country. Uh, Americans of all races love our country. And a doctrine that's grounded in hatred of our country is eventually going to just grate to the point where people will reject it. So I think perhaps what we see in the 1619 Project is a bubble. Uh, we may have to endure this for a few more years, but at some point, Americans are going to say enough. Uh, I think that a fairly substantial number of Americans are already saying enough. Uh, I'm seen on the basis of... Uh, you know, the talks that I give and the places I go, a kind of grassroots movement around the country where people are turning to their schools and say, what the devil are you doing? This is bad. Don't do it anymore. Uh, that's going to be a conflict point. I expect that uh, we'll see this thoroughly politicized and fought out in Congress and in state legislatures, but we're also going to see it happening uh, school district by school district all over the country. So uh, I would take a, a fundamental uh, optimism from the capacity of Americans to love their country enough to fight for it when they realize what's at stake. Well, yeah, the fight is it's, it's school board by school board. It's not the enemy outside. It's the enemy within. It's, you know, getting our children's minds. This is what... Uh, this is what Marxism did. This is what communism did. They start with the schools. They forget about the parents. Let's re-educate the kids. And they create a whole new world order. Right. Which, of course, fell apart. And has this one will as well. So Yeah, I, I really hope so. The name of the book is 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Dr. Peter Wood, uh, I, I wish you continued success. Keep fighting the fight. And... Uh, for those who just basically uh, want to do something, you suggest they they don't have the education, they don't have the historical facts. What should they be doing? Calling their school boards, calling their calling teachers, calling whom? What should they be doing? I think talking to teachers, calling school boards is a very good step. If you don't personally feel confident enough to do that, um, you might start by just picking up a history book, not some big, complicated 800-page history book, but a, a short history of America, which will maybe remind you of things that you learned a long time ago and haven't thought about for years and years. But even if you've never encountered them before, <clears throat> a short history book would give you the opportunity to uh, have that conversation that you ought to be having with your teachers. Uh, I titled my book 1620 for a reason. 1620 was the year in which uh, the pilgrims arrived off the coast of Massachusetts and signed the Mayflower Compact. It was a, basically an agreement to create a form of self-government, our first charter of self-government in the New World. Um, if you know something about that, then you know that America has been struggling towards self-definition, a creation of a free, respectful, tolerant government from nearly the beginning. And that's something you can talk to your kids about 
once the, your kids understand that you care about history, they will care about it too. Um, history has a reputation of being a dry and boring subject. Um, that's because sometimes it's badly taught. But uh, if you take an interest in it in yourself, you'll understand that it's full of just astonishingly good stories, which once you've learned them, you'll want to talk to other people about them. Dr. Wood, for the, for the, average, for the average folk, what history book would you recommend getting? No, I think there's a very good one right now uh, by a historian named Bill McClay. And uh, the, um, the idea here is to um, bring a simple sort of, uh, the book is titled Land of Hope. It brings a, a simple, straightforward narrative of America's past within reach of anybody. If you can read, you can read Land of Hope. It's, Great. It's not uh, hard. Outstanding. And by the way, he's uh, going to be a guest on our podcast. And I ah. read it, and I thought it was fantastic. I really th- I learned so much, and it's very, very balanced. And that's coming from a layman, and I'm sure if you were, and, and we did not discuss this prior, so I'm really glad that I like something you liked. <laughs> well, me too. That's great. All right, Professor Wood, Thank you so much. Fantastic. I I, I wish you continued success and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.